0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. I'm state historian Walt Woodward. Mohegan medicine woman and tribal historian Melissa Tantequidgen-Zobel is a literary polymath award-winning playwright, Emmy-winning screenwriter, novelist, poet, and now a radio dramatist, she and her equally accomplished daughter Madeline Sayet, director of Yale University's Indigenous Performing Arts program, have created for Hartford's Heartbeat Ensemble, Up and Down the River, a radio drama of five short plays that provide a unique and important window into key moments in Mohegan history and culture. The drama is currently streaming for free at the website heartbeatensemble.org. Join me for a virtual meetup with Sobel, where we talk about this remarkable production. For nearly 20 years now, Hartford's Heartbeat Ensemble has been creating provocative theater that speaks powerfully across different generations, races, populations, and interest groups to help Connecticut communities reach beyond traditional barriers of race, gender, class, and geography. But like all performing arts groups, COVID-19 has challenged and inspired Heartbeat Ensemble to find new and creative ways to fulfill this essential mission. One of the most fascinating has been Up and Down the River, an online radio drama of five short plays that chronicle the struggles of leaders of the Mohegan people from the 17th to the 20th centuries. With us today on Grading the Nutmeg is Melissa Tantequidgen-Zobel, Mohegan tribal historian and medicine woman who co-authored the plays with Madeline Sayet, director of the Yale University Indigenous Performing Arts Program, who also performed in the productions. Melissa, thanks for joining us today on Grading the Nutmeg. It's great to see you. Those of us who have the pleasure to know you, and I've known Melissa for a while, if you've known her for any amount of time, you can vouch for her boundless energy and in inexhaustible creativity but for those of you who are listening and uh, don't know Melissa that well I want to take a minute and share a bit of your background she's done all this stuff it's the truth Melissa Tantequidgen Zobel grew up in Mohegan, Connecticut, where she was trained in tribal oral tradition, traditional life ways, and spiritual beliefs by her great aunt and great uncle, medicine woman Gladys Tantequidgen and Chief Harold Tantequidgen. From a young age, she gave tours at the family's Tantequidgen Museum, now owned and operated by the Mohegan tribe. Melissa earned a BSFS in History Diplomacy from Georgetown University, an MA in History from the University of Connecticut, and an MFA, wow, from Fairfield University uh, in Creative Writing. As a young adult, she worked as a Mohegan Federal Recognition Coordinator, researching and organizing her tribe's successful bid for federal acknowledgement. She was appointed tribal historian in 1991 and medicine woman in 2008. This year, she was a finalist in Eugene O'Neill Theater's National Playwrights Conference for her play Flying Birds Diary. That play was also a selection for the Oklahoma Indigenous Theaters 2020 New Native Play Festival, a finalist for Storyline's Vitruvian Award, and a winner in the New York Screenplay Contest Stage Play category. She's also written for film, receiving an Emmy for her work on the movie The Mark of Uncus, as well as numerous screenwriting awards. Tana Quijan Zobel's books include... The Biography Medicine Trail, The Life and Lessons of Gladys Tanaquidgin, University of Arizona Press 2000, and The Mystery Wabanaki Blues, published by the Poison Pen Press in 2015. Her goal is to share the enduring traditions, humor, challenges, joys, and spirit of historic and contemporary native New England. And Melissa, when do you sleep?
1: I could ask you the same question, Walt.
0: That's an amazing list of accomplishments. And what's really true is that there's as much left off of that list as there was on it. What a force of nature. So tell us, what brought you to this project?
1: Well, uh, as you know, and first of all, just let me just greet everyone uh in Mohegan, Akwe and Cha, the native language of Connecticut. And uh, I really feel that we all have been doing a lot of soul searching, of course, um, doing during this time that we've been at home, a lot of us and some of us not so much at home. And uh, so Madeline Sayet, who's who's my daughter, uh, she doesn't usually have a lot of time to spend with me collaborating. She's usually traveling all over the world, uh, doing her theatrical engagements as a director and, and an actor and and so on. But she was on and off at home, and uh, because much of much of her directing work was done on Zoom uh, during the pandemic, and so uh, what happened was uh, Heartbeat Ensemble approached us about this notion of uh, commissioning us to do these plays in Mohegan and and. Neither of us had ever done radio plays, so that's a little terrifying, you know, at one level. But at the same time, we thought, what a wonderful opportunity to allow folks to use their imagination because I'm one of those one of those real radio play lovers. You know, I, I love nothing more than to listen to radio plays on public radio. I think they're just so engaging. Yeah,
0: you and me. It's true.
1: Yeah. So that's that's kind of how it all happened. But uh, Godfrey Simons, who is in charge of uh, what, what we worked on there and in charge of the programs at Heartbeat, he was so supportive and so helpful, and um, when we asked him for input, he was, you know, really, really good at critiquing and saying, yes, this part, um, no, that part's okay, you know, or, or not so okay, and and so I, I felt he was just a delight to work with, and I can't say enough good about Heartbeat Ensemble.
0: So, How did you arrive at the five stories that you're telling? Because as someone who has studied Mohegan history in the context of Connecticut history, they just seem spot on perfect to kind of tell a narrative of tribal history from the 17th century up to the present. But you could have had so many. So how did you pick these particular instances?
1: sort of like you you kind of wonder if the ancestors had something to do with that well because- I've
0: been yeah <laughs> we'll talk about that later well
1: it's hard I mean there are iconic figures in Mohegan history that we kind of felt. We needed to include, but there are many iconic figures we didn't include. I mean, we we didn't include Fidelia Fielding, we didn't include Emma Baker, um, you know, we oh, but we did include Sachem Uncas, who was a foundational character and, of course, well-known in literary circles. So, yes, we had to include Sachem Uncas, and we also felt what a good place to begin. We could have begun earlier, we thought of that, we could have begun with a pre-colonial character, but what we really wanted to chart Uh, in this particular series of plays was a circular struggle uh, that began with a lot of challenges in the 1600s, but that has brought the tribe to a place of wholeness and certainly not perfection or perfect wholeness, but, but has brought us to a place in the 21st century where many of the things that were lost are either being repaired or have been repaired. And and that I think was the that was the motivation of you know, we're not that imaginative. Natives think in circles, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: so would you would you like to kind of stop at each story and talk about them a little bit yes. and do an overview? So this first story I I think the way you conceptualized it is absolutely brilliant. And, and I feel in some ways like I know Uncas pretty well because I studied him through English eyes through one of his great adversaries, who was John Winthrop Jr., the founder of New London. And he and Uncas had a respectful disagreement that lasted 20 or 30 or 40 years. And my conclusion about Uncas, when I studied all of these 17th century people, and, and it's still something I feel very strongly about him, is that he was the best politician of anyone in 17th century Southern New England. He knew exactly how to push everybody's buttons and when to stop. He knew exactly how to defend his interests right up to the limit. But that's not the story that you are telling. And it's and what I love about this is that the story opens up and he's being carried to the top of a hill. What's happening in this story?
1: Well, I was told it comes from actually a, a bit of oral tradition that I was told as a child that Uncas-on-Thames Hospital, when it was a hospital, was, was named for the fact that when Uncas was an elder man, he asked to be carried to the banks of the Thames to watch the comings and goings so he could help his people and keep an eye on things and he could be useful. And I thought, my God, I mean, that's that's love of your people. That's dedication. That's wanting to contribute to the very end. And, and so that image has been very strongly embedded in my mind since childhood. And I, want, I have always wanted to do something with it. It was Uh, it's the
0: perfect way to begin this story. And he's not just being carried to the river to watch the comings and goings, but it's his last day, isn't
1: it? Yes. It's his last day. And and the other thing I really wanted to talk about, and it's one of the reasons I used the last day, was I wanted to say what the heck the women were doing in this period, because they're yes. so left out of all the narratives, colonial, native, whatever. There's no women in these narratives.
0: Women but- figure importantly in every single story you tell here. And one of the things that I'd like to come back and talk about throughout is how strong the women are and how important they are as culture keepers. Uh, to me, that seems to be one of the really powerful messages of, of every story in this radio drama. Uncas has been he's been carried to the river, he, he's looking down, and I love the appearance of his nana, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> Nanak shows up in the form of Marge Brushak, you know, who's an anthropology professor at the University of Pennsylvania and who's also an Abenaki Indian and uh, a woman of great force and wonderful sarcasm. So she was beautifully cast as his grandmother. Uh, and she's speaking to um, Bruce Tudog's bosom as Uncas, who is a former chairman of the tribe. So I needed a woman with gravitas to kind of give heck to someone who had been a Mohegan leader.
0: What, and uh, this there, seemed
1: like a good pairing.
0: All of the actors in this radio drama, with one exception, are Native people, right? They're, yes,
1: that is correct.
0: Clearly, that was intentional. But how do you think it affected the interpretations and in the performances? Did this help the production?
1: It did because there's a certain rhythm to our humor. And the reason I know that it helps is because I actually had one of my plays read by a series of actors in Toronto who were not Native, and then a series of actors who were Native, and they were all professional actors in both cases. But they missed the rhythm on the jokes, the non-Native actors, because they weren't used to hearing the particular rhythm with which many Native people speak. So in fact, it's helpful with some of these plays to also have more local Native people involved if possible, um, although, oddly, we've discovered that the Tlingit people in the Northwest have the same rhythm and sense of humor, so we, we work great with them, too. And, you know, and it was interesting.
0: People, You're, yeah. Am I right that the sound designer? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Glory.
1: Yeah, yes, Rory is it, but so was the uh, woman who played uh, in several plays, and one of them being Samuel Ashbow's wife. Is
0: It is remarkable the way the ensemble works together. You get the feeling from, from the beginning that something special and something important is going on. That tends to carry through every story right to the end. In this first story, it's... Uncas' last day, his last day living, you certainly get the feeling that it's not his last day by any means. And his grandmother, who uh, Uncas is now very old himself, so obviously his grandmother is a spirit presence. He, he kind of derides her for, you're always popping in on me, and I'm an old man now, and you're, you're going to kill me one, <laughs> one day popping in. And, <laughs> and she lets him know, today's your last day. And I'm here to find out what in your life that you've done do you regret? And what a, what a great question to ask. We hope and that
1: doesn't happen to us, right? <laughs>
0: right. Well, <laughs> yeah, indeed. How, uh, my answer would be, how long have you got? Yeah. But Uncas' answers. I found to be really thought-provoking and very powerful. And how do you put yourself as a writer in his shoes or in his mind?
1: Well, my uncle, Chief Harold Tanaquidgen, was very good at that. He he always reminded us of the fact that we were Pequot and Narragansett as well. And his mark, which is also part of my name mark, carries a mark for Sassacus to never forget Sassacus. And uh, my, my family's heritage is Tantacujins is also Narragansett. And so Sassacus can...
0: was a sachem. He was the chief of the Pequot tribe.
1: Correct. Right? I'm sorry. Yes, Sassacus yeah. was a sachem of the Pequot. So we have we have a lineage that traces to Ninigrid of the Narragansetts, Sassacus of the Pequots, and of course, Sachemunkus. And so growing up, it always occurred to me that these were family members. You know, these are people that must always be given the due and respect of family members. And yes, they were Uncas family members, and my God, what a family crisis that must have been in the 1600s for our family.
0: Well, that is because he is related to each of the, the major tribal players in southern New England, and there's a lot of competition among them because of the way the Dutch and the English have stirred up everything with their arrival. And Uncas in this story I found myself feeling this empathy for him because he's torn between loyalty to both his culture and his family, individual family members, and this feeling that if we're going to survive, we have to make friends with the English. And that's, that's his story. And it's not one that on his last day, he seems to not waver in his conviction that he needed to do it. But it's one that's left him really kind of unsettled, isn't it?
1: Well, it has him un- left him unsettled, and I think by by re quoting the Mayantinomo speech, which is so beautiful, I, I find that just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, it reminded, um, of course, even the Mohegan players in this of the magnitude of the of the other man in this this duel of men that was going on between Mayantinomo and Uncas, and what a power. So, and Mayantinomo
0: was a sachem of the Narragansetts. Who, yes, who and and. He also was Uncas's cousin, am I right? They are Right,
1: cousin Rival and Sachem of the Narragansett. Yeah,
0: cousin and say- Rival and Sachem and and in and what happens is is Uncas is actually the indirectly he is the agent of antonomo's death by yeah. English orders. So yeah. think of what that I mean you you actually present that in a very compelling way, but think of the Think of the personal struggle that must have been to make that decision.
1: Well, I've had conversations about the Pequot War with many Pequots. I've had conversations about the death of my antidote with Mary Narragansetts. I derived that portrayal of the death of Narragansett from conversations with John Brown, the Narragansett medicine man, who's a friend of mine, over many years. And, you know, his understanding that the death was done ceremoniously, that the death had to be done in a respectful way if it was going to be demanded, um, You know, that these were rivals, but they were men who had a mutual respect for one another. Like you said, with Winthrop and Uncas, you know, it, it didn't mean you didn't respect the other person. And so that's, that was where I got all, all of the, the things that are sitting on the fringe of history in this are from either conversations or oral tradition in different tribes.
0: Well, and, and, you know, we've, we've been talking, I think for longer about this, this first story in the five story, uh, radio drama, than it actually takes because there is so much. You just put so much in this first fifteen minutes, and I think whether you're someone who has you know studied this period in history in great depth, or whether you know nothing about it, this is an, this is such a wonderful starting point into understanding the perspective of the people of Southern New England who were here long before it was New England, and long before. Uh, the first Europeans showed up. So, you know, A-plus for the way you started this. And then you go on, you know, story number two, it, it's kind of relentless in the in uh, its analysis of um, the native perspective on English relations. And you tell what is, it's one of the really difficult stories, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's about Samson Ockham, and Eliezer Wheelock. Now, I know who they are, you know who they are, but I think a lot of people may or may not know this story. So, can you kind of set it up for what's going on here?
1: So, Eliezer Wheelock um, was a minister and a teacher, and he taught many Native pupils in his Indian school, one of whom was Samson Ockham. And Samson Ockham became also a minister and uh, one of the prized students of Eliezer Wheelock. But, uh, after a time, you know, Uncas kind of outgrew his mentee role and started to question um, his, his teacher. And things really come to a head over the issue of the fundraising that Occam does in England for what eventually becomes Dartmouth College.
0: Yeah, so Eliezer Wheelock has this Indian school in this little town, Columbia, which is where I live now. So the, the school is a, a landmark for the town. So Wheelock had started this Indian school, and Samson Occum came as a scholar to the school, and he, by every account, he was a phenomenon. And he he is such a good student and such a good scholar that when Wheelock is trying to raise money for this school, he he sends Occum to England and say, "See what we could do. Look at this, look at this gifted scholar. If you if you give us money." We can expand this school and we can create more wonderful Sam, you know, a world of Samson Occam's. Right. And Occam goes and for, I think it's over a year he is in he is in England. And sometimes he's giving two and three sermons a day, but they're fundraising sermons. It's like he is the development officer for this Indian school project, and he's great at it they love him they you know he's he he is he's very successful in fact he raises a sum of money that astounds everyone and, and that
1: is kind of iffy i said 12,000 sometimes they say 10,000 so the amount just means millions of dollars in today's terms that's the yeah only i
0: have i have read 12,000 pounds as the figure but it's so hard to translate monetary figures from the the 18th century into today but it is you know, it's more money than you ever want to see. It's it's a I'm, it's a lot of money. And one of the deals he made with Wheelock when he left is I'm gonna go and I'll raise money for the school, but you've got to take care of my wife. You've got to take care of my family while I'm gone. And there is an agreement, right, between between uh Wheelock and Samson Ockham that his wife, Mary Mary Fowler, right, is that that uh, Wheelock will take care of his wife, Mary, till he gets back. Your story opens up with Samson Ockham coming in the door. He's home and he's like, hi, Mary. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I, I'm home and wow, what a trip I had. So how's he greeted?
1: Yeah, she's not so happy. She tries, to, she does a lot of what Uncas grandmother does. She's the Indian woman who tells him, that's nice. Meanwhile, we're all starving to death. And, you know, you, you're such a big man. Look what you've done for your family. Nothing.
2: Did you not receive my letters? What do you mean? Of course I did. I have been here trying to feed and clothe our children without means. I wrote to you that we were hungry over and over again. But perhaps you did not hear your family's pleas while you were off gallivanting around England, forgetting who you are. Reverend Wheelock promised to take care of you. Did he now? Well, as is the case with the most white men, he lied. He's a good man, he wouldn't. Have you forgotten yourself completely? I... You even sound like them. Well, I don't look like them and I'm not them. I'm a Mohegan man and I'm still your husband. They all marked me as, as something extraordinary in England, an Indian preacher. They would have put me on display if they could, no doubt. Yes, a man who can find 12,000 pounds for a school, but not one copper for his wife and children is a rarity indeed. Please, Mary, I need you to understand we will be able to educate so many Native youth at our new school. It will change Mohegan, all of our Native nations, maybe even the world. I'm so very sorry that there must have been some misunderstanding with the Reverend. I will go see him at once. There has been no misunderstanding. You will see.
1: Uh, and so it's, it's a very dark conversation um, that the two of them have. Uh, it brings him down from this crescendo of greatness that he's experienced in, you know, in his travels. Uh, and it opens up his trying to deal with a very changed New England in that year also. Um, New England has, even in that one particular year, shifted very much from being less English and more American.
0: That's, I thought that was a, that was such a good insight that you put when he left and went over to Britain, it was, it was in the tail end of the, you know, after the French and Indian War, everyone felt, you know, very British, but it was also just after the Stamp Act and the beginning of the resistance. And by the time he gets home. Although he is a hero in Britain, the American people are beginning to move in a different direction. And one of those people is Eliezer Wheelock, right? And Wheelock did not honor his obligation to take care of Occam's wife at all, did he? Now what was his what was his reason for doing that?
1: Well, we can assume, I guess, that Um, We we do know for a fact that that Mary Fowler was very traditional and insisted on wearing traditional clothes, just like Samson Ockham's sister did. A lot of the Indian women in that period, the men went away, but the women spoke their language at home only. They wore their traditional clothes only, and they lived according to the old ways and their beliefs in the spirits. Even if they were Christianized, they had their old spiritual beliefs. So she was of that ilk and uh, really not probably a woman who could be subservient to a white male minister or even a native male. She had grown up in a world where she was much more of an equal.
0: But Occam had become a Christian, but one of the things that becomes really clear, I think, in the telling is that adopting Christianity for a native is a different thing than, I think, people who, than English people who were Christians and that's it, uh, the monotheistic God and that's, you know, that's my God and I'm sticking with him or her or it. For Native people, it's a, religion is a different and much more complex and vital animistic thing, isn't it?
1: Well, it is definitely more complex. And and yet, you know, even in Europe, it is tailored to fit a country, right? Irish religion and Christianity is one thing and German is another. And so, you know, cultures around the world when they adopted Christianity all added their own flavor. Um, The only difference I think with native people is that our understanding of spirits is not one that pushes one out when you let another in, it's very much all inclusive. right? So you can kind of believe in a very broad spirituality when, um, we we did because we didn't have a book, I guess maybe, that was the book. You know, someone came in with a new story, you'd say, Well, that's interesting. I'll I'll add that to my understanding. Sure. Sure.
0: Paris. Extra power. Uh, extra, extra
1: knowledge, extra yeah. power. And and so it's a little more free-flowing. And that is a very hard thing uh, for me to convey in the story. Um and I think Occam, even maybe having been in England for a year. Has lost a little of that is but, kind of what but, I'm to
0: But out. it's interesting in this story, Mary kind of brings him back because she, she points out to him that, or at least she suggests to him something that he later finds is true is that Wheelock not only didn't honor his commitment to take care of Occam's family, but he's also going to refashion. Or reneg, you decide what the on on the agreement to set up the Indian school. When he sees all that money in this story, he says, Why, you know, why limit this just to Indians? We can create a great college, right? And we can for for you know Indians and others, and of course the and others becomes the primary mission of the college that becomes Dartmouth College, right? Right, and And, and
1: I have to credit my mother for this story because my mother said to me one day, just imagine, Melissa, if they had honored Occam's promise and made a great Indian school in New England, if Dartmouth College had been a native school, what that would have done for our people.
0: Indeed. How much
1: good that could have done, how many less generations of poverty and illiteracy and other things, what would that have done for our people? And that power of that statement was, yeah, that was, that was really bad.
0: <laughs> well, and, and it is, it's, uh, I have a little trouble with this because I know the story. So I'm, I'm, as you tell it, I'm also, I'm very aware of what the future is going to be. Occam is really disillusioned yes. when he finds out that Wheelock look had that both of the things he counted on Wheelock for, he's not going to come through with. What he does is says, OK, you know, I can't I can't trust the English or the Americans, whatever they're going to be. I can't trust these people, but I have this new religion and I have my old religion. So I think I'm going to pack them all up and go with my people to another place. And off he goes. And and that really was the story of the rest of his life. He he Samsonaka moved to uh, Brother town a place in New York, actually, outside of what is now utica, and then the the group that went with him then later went out to Wisconsin, right the Brother town, and they are going to th- th- actually what I love about this story, as I understand it, is they are going to actually practice Christianity the way it ought to be and not the way the English do it, right
1: That is definitely one interpretation <laughs> yeah,
0: yes. well, there you go and but anyway. The the this is another it's another one of those wonderful stories when you see it through the vision that you present it. When you see it through your eye when you see it through their eyes as interpreted by you and Madeline, it's a completely different perspective than I've seen from all of the histories of Dartmouth and the histories of Wheelock. It's it's a fabulous story. And and you then go to the third story so we go from this this disappointing story just before the american revolution to the to another story of a minister and a kind of disgruntled wife who has an absolutely perfect reason to be so right samuel ashpo and his wife he's a minister and he they have three children who die in the american revolution
1: It's interesting, you know, our our wonderful archivist, Emeritus, Faith Davison, had done a lot of research, um, may she rest in peace, on uh, Samuel Ashbow. And it was such a remarkable story, you know, it had kind of been forgotten in the annals of Mohegan history by many of our members that or perhaps never mentioned at the time that the first native soldier, not the first native, because Crispus Attucks was the first native to die in the revolution, but the first native soldier to die in the revolution was a Mohegan at Bunker Hill or Breeds Hill. And so when this story started to really be fleshed out and we, we saw the details and we saw, not only did he die, but you know, his brothers died and, and you know, His mother um, had had her land taken from her because their tribe had to sell off its land because um, it was wanted by the local colonists, the Walgunk land. And so I'm thinking of this woman who the only story we had about her was that she got mad one day, had too much to drink and threw a rock at her husband. And I thought, hmm, (laughs) what was she mad about? (laughs) And And then I looked at the times and I looked at her world and I thought, Wow. He's lucky she didn't kill him
0: (laughs) (laughs) because it was a terrible
1: story. The Thunder Beings have called me back to my duties.
0: You act as if our boys died for nothing.
1: What did that war profit our surviving sons? They are worse off than before. And what of our daughter, Hannah? What did it profit her? Will these white men ever treat any women as equals? Will they ever learn to respect Mother Earth? Will they ever let us pray to
2: our spirits as we please? those are the things they call heathen. So native women are worthless in their eyes. Our daughter is wise and patient, and she has taught her daughter Martha Uncas to follow the old ways. Martha will teach the next generation of Mohegan women to be wise and patient and strong of heart. There! You hear that? You, Reverend Samuel Ashbow, are about to be judged by the Thunder Beings. Confess your sins to
1: Mother Earth right now. The spirits are
2: listening, Samuel.
1: And, you know, she um, she was bereft. Everything had been taken from her, her children, her land. I wanted to try and understand what was the spiritual component, because in the story that was handed down to us, something very strange happens in the sky when she does this. There's this tremendous storm. And a Christian minister named Finley... Wrote up the account and said it was the hand of God to strike down this woman. And I thought, or,
0: yeah, uh, <laughs> or, but on the other hand, on the other hand,
1: um, we believe in thunder beings as being one of the animate weather forms. And so, thunder is a spirit that is, I don't want to say a deity because that translates so poorly, but, but a spirit that has a living animacy and life like a being. It's not just, uh, some, some things like snow, not maybe so much, but thunder is considered to be alive. And so what, what was the thunder upset about? And so this, is, this one, more than all the others, is more of a reimagining of a traditional story um, and, and less uh, utilization, perhaps, of the historical record and more a decolonization or deconstruction. Sure of an oral
0: tradition. Well, as you tell that story, Samuel seems to be more than any of your other characters in some ways, the one who has most adopted kind of English culture. He's very much into a kind of male centric dominance. He, you know, he says, you should listen to me because I'm the man. She's like, what? What does it matter with you? And he, you know, he, he tells her that she she should be grateful that her children are gone cuz they're with God now and he in many ways adopts a very euro anglo anglo christian view of the world and one of the things that comes out here is uh differing views of gender roles in relations between the the you know the European society and Native society, and I think that was something you intentional intended to bring out in these stories, right? Yes. So yes,
1: I wanted people to see how much Native women lost between 1600 and really the present, um, in terms of their world, which was a little more balanced um, in terms of gender roles, and 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 that this was this is a loss that not many people think of, you know, that Native women on top of everything else had lost their status.
0: Well, they, and,
1: you know, it was like a handmaid's tale for us this right, period. Well, they, know, we're going but, back.
0: But the women, I, I mean, I may be wrong and correct me if this wasn't the intention, but my impression of the women in these stories is they may not be powerful, but they're very strong. They're, they're, they have strong characters. They, they are deeply committed to and embedded in the traditional culture and the traditional ways and they're not going to give them up that it, yeah.
1: Yeah. they are the land they are mother earth they're connected to it all and they feel it very deeply um, and and so you know the loss of a son or the loss of um, the loss of the land they're, they're virtually the same thing they're all part of um, what what it is that's part of them uh, so so
0: the loss I'm- you're talking about is really this ultimate, trajectory of dispossession. As you are dispossessed of the land, you're also dispossessed of all these other forms of power that are traditional and, and part of you. The, there is an effort at resistance to that in the fourth story that I think is just wonderful. It's titled Eagle Feather, and you know, why don't you tell us about this story? I really like this, and you can you can explain why the eagle feather is the well,
1: yes the mohegan how you got church, to the title uh, it's one of my favorite stories. This is about the mohegan church, and um actually, one of our tribal members uh Madeline Hutchins, uh, who's a divinity student at Yale, she's playing Sarah Huntington, which is just wonderful and uh it's It's really an important story because it deals with something very few people know, which is that during Indian removal, people in Connecticut uh, were of a very different mind than people in the South. And Connecticut deserves some credit for being very much against Indian removal and seeing that this was a hellacious attempt at theft. And, you know, regardless of whether. You know, someone liked Indians or not, it, this, this, what was going on in Cherokee country was inexcusable. Many of the people who were removed were Christians, first of all. So they couldn't say they weren't civilized and Christianized. They right. were Christians, even. They had, they were, in fact, many of them were the five civilized tribes. That's what they were called, right? And so there was this just pure. Rapacious land theft that was going on. And some of the Connecticut delegation just said, no, we do not support this. We're against it. They very much didn't like Jackson. In the newspapers at that time, there's a lot of really snarky uh, behavior going on around um, attitudes towards the Jacksonians. And so I. I wondered, you know, how does this all play out? And of course, Sarah Huntington kept journals, and she was uh, a Mohegan missionary. I'm, I'm sorry, she was a Norwich missionary to the Mohegans, and her um, her cousin was a very famous local politician, um, and so he really uh, was able to assist her in helping the Mohegans to not fall into this Indian removal movement. Uh, but not only did he assist the Mohegans, he was speaking for a lot more than just the Mohegans. And uh, I I wanna learn more about this because uh, I feel that the Huntingtons are interesting people and maybe you you have more on this, but uh, Sarah Huntington is at this point in the story, a kid. She's in her early twenties. Yeah. She's just a kid. She decides she's going to call her cousin the senator. She's going to call the Secretary of War. She, she's she a kid it.
0: with connections.
1: With connections, okay. Yeah. She's she's a rich lady with connections yeah. Yeah. too. But she's also just uh, f- fearless and dauntless. She is uh, in her support.
0: She is, and so she she comes up with this. Well, she she pushes for this plan, right? I've got a strategy that is going to just remove you from being removed. And what is it?
1: She says, we're going to build a church. Oh, then they think, wow, you know, Samson Ockham couldn't get a church. Um, Samson Ockham's sister couldn't get a church. So there's something at Mohegan that just isn't quite comfortable about the building of a church. I think there were chapels, maybe places to worship. But putting a church on the reservation, Uncas had worked very hard to keep churches off the reservation and so I think there's a little bit of deference to uncas even in some of that even though people some of them yeah. have started to Christianize so I probably should have mentioned that more but that's part of what's going on and yet uh when faced with the when faced with the choice of do we do we just let let ourselves be removed or do we build a church they build a church but just just like many things they come up with a caveat
0: that's right it's a it's Sarah, in the story, Sarah is the one that is pushing them to build the church as a symbol to the rest of the world that these are people that they're just like us. You shouldn't remove right. these people. And and it's a real struggle, this debate. And, and interestingly, it's a struggle among women who are talking about whether they're going to do this in the story. It's not... Is not a decision that's being made by men. It's a decision by Mohegan women. So are we going to accept this church on our land? And they go back to Sarah and say, eh, We yeah. it, it given the situation, it makes sense to us only on one condition. What's the condition?
1: All right. So well, two maybe two conditions. There are two conditions. Yeah. One, one the one condition is that there be an eagle feather that hangs above the cross, because nothing can be more. Oh, that's
0: right. People. There are. I'm sorry. There are two conditions.
1: That's the first condition, and then the second condition is that the church can never be taken from the tribe. That it's in the deed. That as long as there is one Mohegan living, that the land there will belong to the Mohegan tribe. So. Um, so the spiritual caveat is that the Eagle Feather will still be in a place of protection. The Eagle and Feather the,
0: is at the highest point of the church, at right? At the
1: highest point in the church, right. That will, be, that will always protect the church. That's, that's the spiritual caveat. And the political caveat is that this land somehow, you can't say now it's our church and therefore it's not your land, which I think yeah. was a, a reasonable concern. Um, if it had been run, if it's run I, by outsiders,
0: it actually, I think it's a, it's a, it is a, it was a brilliant and very thoughtful move because in many, in many uh, faith traditions, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, church institutional structure that owns the actual church, so. If the Mohegans are no longer practicing, it reverts back to the diocese or to the Senate or whatever. And this literally took that off the table before the first nail was pounded. That
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's on sacred Mohegan land. And and it's on a place that had been sacred, but interestingly enough, had already been a little bit desecrated you know in terms of by by missionaries who didn't like some of the traditional stories about that piece of land for instance mashup's rocks right next to the church mashup is a traditional giant the missionaries called it the devil's rock so we already knew there was going to be trouble if if that wasn't in mohican
0: hands yeah well it's a it is a wonderful story and it It brings that story of of Indian removal, which seems to be a Southern story. It gives it a place right in the heart of New England, right in the heart of our region, which is, I think that's a service to everybody. And then there's your last story that, you know, that must have been an immensely personal story to write. And I I I don't even want to try to tell it. I just want to say it begins with a fire, right? So so why don't you tell us what this story is?
1: So in obviously in in theater and screenplays and books, you're always thinking scene, right? What is a scene that you you find compelling? And when I was working on Gladys's biography, the scene that I found most compelling was when she told the scene, a story about her house burning down. And she said that. Harold Tantequich and her brother had to grab the hose from the firemen and that they didn't have enough to save the house and the lodge. And so Harold wet down the museum, Tantequich and museum, Tantequich and lodge and all the trees and the house burned. And I remember thinking, wow, (laughs) just wow. That had to be, and and her telling it was, it was a very powerful telling. Um, But in terms of actions that we take that express our moral value. I couldn't think of a better example.
0: Right. Do you save the house, which is the place where you grew up, the place where you live, or do you save the lodge? And I love the way there's two things that you do in this story that I've been thinking about ever since I listened to it. One is the, the distinction that Harold makes, I'm not sure that Gladys goes along with it, but this distinction between a lodge and a museum, and also this idea that if you're going to preserve your family history, it's not in the house, it's in the lodge. So maybe you could
1: Right. So a lodge, of course, a lodge is a poor translation of what it is really in a Native culture, but it's the closest thing we can come up with in that it is supposed to feel warm and familial and inviting and a place where you gather in a positive way to commune. And you may commune with, with living people. You might commune with ancestors. You might commune with spirits. You might commune with animals. You might commune with plants. But you are in a place where Everyone is welcome, and you're there to have some sort of a uh, communal um, gathering. And so it's, it's very different than, I mean, just imagine if we had, instead of the British Museum, we had the British Lodge and the Smithsonian Lodge. I mean, they <laughs> don't really give you that vibe, but, they, but that would be a different kind of a place.
0: Well, one of the points that Harold makes repeatedly, and it was just fascinating to me, is that the things that people in a museum would call artifacts— he is treating as if they are relatives. That they are, that 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 the artifacts of people and other times are living. You know that they, they're in. I guess you would say imbued with the spirit of the people who had. I don't. I don't know they how are. to define it. No, but. they
1: are. They are imbued with spirit and they are alive. And I can attest to the fact that they are alive because I have experienced heartbeats among objects. I have experienced. <sighs> the living life and spirit of many of these items. Um, some who took on life when they were returned, say to a tribe that they were kept for, for safekeeping. Um, some when they, you know, were used in a ceremony um, and, and some when they were spoken to. Um, Marge Bruchak, uh, who I mentioned earlier, who's a professor at UPenn, just recently wrote an interesting article on talking to objects to understand them better, right? To have that have that communal kind of lodge discussion with them. Yeah. And it, and if a community does that, sometimes they remember more about it. They, they pull out thoughts, they pull out ideas. And so, um, yes, everything at the museum was a relative, is a relative, and must be cared for. And that's why the whole notion of relatives going to other institutions or being sold or being stolen is so horrifying for Native people, because not only are objects relatives, interestingly enough, your language is considered your eldest elder. So so you have this pantheon of of a family, I guess, um, and spirits that is connected in a way that I was trying to show is very different from the mainstream.
0: Well, and and that comes through in each story, and it comes through with a kind of forceful totality in the in the whole collection of stories. One day, I'd like to sit down with you and talk for hours about the sense of spiritual forces that you live with, because I have this sense that that this animism, this spiritual power is very real to you, a constant companion, and that they're also co-writing with you. Is that... Yes. You know, is that true? That is
1: absolutely true. Um, I I truly don't know where other writers get their ideas, but I don't have to look for them. <laughs> that's all I can say. That,
0: that's that's it's a wonderful thing. So so the the radio drama is online at Heartbreak Ensemble's website from now till the end of December. And yes. Heart- But I am hoping it's going to have a much longer life than that, because this is a kind of revelatory experience that I think anyone I know can benefit from spending the hour, the, the hour and a half, and really immersing themselves in these dramas that you have put together. Is there a plan moving forward to keep this Available. Um, Madeline,
1: Madeline Saint, and I worked on these together, and Madeline's my daughter. And right now, for now, you can you can have them, you know, at your at your beck and call till the end of the year through Heartbeat Ensemble online, uh, and they're free. Uh, but we want to continue to use them as an educational piece, and a heartbeat yeah. has, has agreed to that. Uh, and the question is, you know, what do you do? Do you do more of this? Do you make some of them in non COVID times into uh, live stage plays, or make them into a do you create a live stage play that is kind of uh, a montage of all of you know, bringing together different periods of time and and using an ensemble? Um, there's a lot of options. I'm open to suggestions. So if anyone has anything they think of, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to take suggestions.
0: How uh, I, I am wondering how in how in COVID times did you produce this thing? This is a, yeah. <laughs> how did I mean I. I was everyone in a studio no. six feet apart no, from each other? No, we were
1: all on our Zoom. And it, it, it's interesting. So first of all, hats off to, to Rory, who did the sound design, because as you know, everyone's voices are at different levels. You know, you're on a Zoom. There's background sound. There's, you know, all kinds of things going on. Um, no. And remember, many of these people are not professional actors, Um you know, almost none actually, <laughs> a few, a few, well, it, a
0: few professional it, it, actors,
1: but a lot of them are, are non professional actors. Uh, and there was a reason for that. What we really wanted was to also have the actors, and this is something my daughter Madeline believes in. And so I'm sort of stealing this from her, but um, she has her actors in dialogue with a piece yeah. um, so that it works and feels right. And if there are places that are, that are rough, that, that they work them out together. And that's what we did. So, you know, if there are places where the, the line didn't sound right or it needed to be changed, we, we had feedback. And, you know, we had wonderful feedback. Um, Miles Rowe, who's a Shinnecock man, um, his family knew a lot about Samson Ockham. And his mother had been very involved in, in preserving La Ockham's legacy. And this was so exciting for us because it meant that we had this wonderful give and take and discussion. Uh, so, you know, uh, I can't, I don't believe in writing something on my own ever. I like to talk to other people about it and get feedback. And And uh, I'm hoping we continue to do pieces where I actually hope people will contact me if they really disagree with what they read and, and or heard. And that's good because I believe it opens a channel for dialogue. And that's what I'm hoping these pieces do.
0: So how did the the actors who who were... Native people, but not professional actors, many of them. How how did the experience of doing this, did you get a read from them about, you know, did it, did it have an yeah. impact
1: on them? It Well, it did. So um, one of them's my son, David Uncas it. He's an attorney in Hartford, and I pulled him into it. So uh, he enjoyed it. Uh, he's done, a, you know, all of my kids have done some acting. But, um, of course, um, Madeline Hutchins, whom I mentioned, uh, has acted, but she's not a professional actor. Bruce Tulug's Bosom, he's had, been on, you know— uh, back-of-house TV show, things like that, but he's not really a professional actor. So we had a lot of folks who uh, you know, don't do this for a living but uh, are very deeply committed to their Mohican culture and heritage, and that was important because the other thing I asked, because I had multiple tribes in the room, was I, I didn't want to do something that was inappropriate towards another tribe or another group of people, uh, and I wanted to make sure that everybody was comfortable with what they were hearing. Yeah. You know, that this that this rang true to folks and places where it didn't, we would we step back and reconsidered. Um, you know, we had a lot of great suggestions. We hadn't mentioned the fact that Occam was on Abenaki's stolen land. Marge reminded me and I said, Thank you. Let's make sure that's mentioned. Uh, you know, things like that. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's the best way to teach kids history, I've decided.
0: I think you know, it's get a, them in
1: a room and have them make a play.
0: Listening to it is a wonderful way to learn history. I felt like in some ways I was I was re-experiencing many things I thought I knew and completely new in different ways. and that's what made it such a wonderful thing for me. How was writing for radio versus writing a play or writing for film? Was it different for you? Is it oh,
1: really hard? And the thing we realized is, you know, you, you have to be a little more of an over actor because no one can see what you're doing. You know, you can't use your body at all. So yeah,
0: there's no, there's no body language. It's right. all in the voice. Yeah. It's
1: all in what you say and the yeah. sounds you make. And that was really hard. Uh, because I, I never really thought that through. So if it's a little rough in a lot of places, that's why, you know, we, we are learning now to be radio writers. And uh, I feel a little more comfortable with it now that I did at the start, because it, it, I don't think I fully understood that to begin
0: with. Is, is it a medium you would like to keep your hand in? I mean, you, you do so many things from novels to films, to plays, it, right. you so know, do you now I want think- to become a radio dramatist?
1: Sure, I mean, my favorite mediums are writing for screen, stage and radio
0: there you go um
1: and and the reason is I think that uh I love dialogue love yeah. dialogue, and it's you know when you write books, boy, you can 't just love dialogue there's a lot more you got to do, and so uh what i 'm doing a scene, I think of it in terms of dialogue, and obviously uh, those other mediums, especially radio, really, give you um, Much more of a pure channel of dialogue, and um, you can kind of have a stream of consciousness of dialogue between people, which is fun.
0: Melissa Tanakwidgen Zobel, Up and Down the River. It's at Heartbeat Ensemble now through the end of December. Go to the website, uh, settle down, get a cup of cocoa, get some cookies, and prepare to have a surprisingly insightful and moving experience. Uh, Wonderful work. Thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much, my dear friend. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Melissa Tatequidgen-Zobel, Madeline Sayed, and Heartbeat Ensemble. Now through December 31st, you can stream the Up and Down the River radio drama for free at heartbeatensemble.org. And to read more Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored magazine at ctexplored.org. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.